Hello and welcome to another episode of What's That Noise, the podcast that pursues matters of confusion and clarity, however and whatever that means. Today we are back from our mini hiatus with an interview I've been really looking forward to for quite a while. We're joined by Dr. Netta Magbule, Assistant Professor of Sociology at the University of Toronto, to chat about her work navigating so-called identity politics in research and in the classroom, as well as the role of social networking in the academy. Netta's research integrates the study of race with the study of immigration by exploring settlement and discrimination-related challenges faced by Middle Eastern and Northern African heritage immigrants in North America. Her book, The Limits of Whiteness, Iranian Americans and the Everyday Politics of Race, published by Stanford University Press in 2017, explores the lived experiences of an immigrant group trapped between legal racial invisibility and everyday racial hypervisibility. I met Netta through Twitter a while ago and I've been bothering her ever since to come on the show, so I'm grateful to her for agreeing to it and really excited to share this with all of you. So sit back, relax, and enjoy our really fun and dynamic discussion. Today, we're back after a little bit of a hiatus. It's been a little bit of a pain, and we apologize to any of you eager listeners who were waiting for a new podcast. We had some audio uh, difficulties that we've overcome now, but we are very, very excited to uh, be releasing a new sort of series, little mini series with uh, the University of Toronto Sociology Department um, over the next couple weeks. And today I am joined by a very uh, awesome colleague and someone who I've been trying to get on this podcast for months, uh, meeting on Twitter, sending uh, messages, retweeting uh, for a few months now. Um, but I'm joined by uh, Dr. Ned- Netta McBoulet. Uh, from the University of uh, Toronto. How are you doing today, Netta? Hi, Derek. I'm really well, thanks. Thanks for coming out to U of T. Oh, it's a great place. We're sitting in the Department of Sociology at the University of Toronto uh, in beautiful downtown Toronto. It's a little bit different than London, Ontario, a little bit busier, um, but uh, it's great to be here. I hear that you experienced the subway on the way to I, this interview. I did. Uh, so I'm carrying around all of this audio equipment, and it's probably 20 pounds on my back. And suddenly the subway stops, and it goes dark. And they say, yeah, well, you can stay in, or you can get out at the next station. So I had to get out. I don't even know what station it was. I'm here now. <laughs> I uh, appreciate you <laughs> schlepping out to my office. It is so wonderful to see you. I just hope it's not a letdown. No, yeah, no. Yeah, after I've... this trudging through our <laughs> humid, extremely humid city today. It is, but it's been it's been brutal in London too. Um, so uh, it's not so bad. I'm kind of used to it. But Netta, thank you so much for sitting down uh, and chatting, taking time out of your busy day. Just want to give us a brief introduction to who you are, what you do, what you study. Sure. Um, I am an assistant professor, so pre-tenure faculty here at U of T Sociology in a rambunctious department with almost 80 faculty. We Um, were just talking about this. Uh, So uh, I am part of this really big dynamic group of junior faculty right now um, who have all come in I would say in the past five years or so and so um, my contribution among the like amazing colleagues that I have here is my work is at the intersection of race and immigration Uh, so the first project that I did which was based in the U.S. where I was born and raised and where I did all of my schooling before coming to Toronto for this job. Um, That case looks at Iranian Americans who are a relatively recent immigrant community in the US. They've really only been there for about the past 40 years en masse, like as a group that was meant to become permanent residents and citizens eventually. Um, So they're relatively recent compared to other immigrant groups, uh, but they're a very timely case to interrogate issues like Islamophobia, discrimination, and also the hook of my book that's about this community is really about 
whiteness. And so Iranians, like others from the broad Middle East uh, in the United States, are federally categorized as white, which is actually contrary to the way that those immigrant communities are sort of integrated into various uh, states uh, in places like you know Sweden, uh, Australia, even in Canada, right? Um, they typically are counted by the government as a visible minority population, sometimes called West Asian or Arab uh, or Middle Eastern. And so there's this interesting predicament when you look at Iranians or others from the broad Middle East in the States, where they're experiencing different forms of uh, discrimina discrimination um, that resemble in some ways communities of color, but at the same time, the state has a difficult time uh, sort of handling uh, the adjudication of these sorts of cases because um, technically in the eyes of the law, they are white. And mm. so um, when cases of white on white crime uh, sort of occur, uh, Iranians are trapped in this uh, this sort of legal no man's land. Um, and what's fascinating to me about that is not just that it's timely and I sort of had been collecting and archiving these different um, cases that have really amassed over time over the past 40 years of sort of race-based issues that are facing this community that are not really adjudicated as such and not able to be, um, but, but in sociology as well. Um, these sort of mainstream American sociological um, uh, theories around assimilation and racialization actually have a pretty tough time making sense of the the experiences of a community that in many ways right possesses high levels of human capital as do Iranians who came right around 1979 um, uh, the high levels of SES educational attainment all of that and yet you know, um, experience these outcomes that we wouldn't necessarily expect from a legally white, uh, high SES group. And so even in sociology, I found that this was an interesting, puzzling and confounding case. So um, my book is this sort of attempt to look at it both with historical and archival legal documents, um, but first and foremost, um, through the stories of young second generation Iranians. So these are the children of those immigrants that came in the 60s and the 70s. Um, the second generation is born in the U.S. They're, you know, intimately familiar and have been socialized through all of the major American institutions like higher education, you know, neighborhoods. And yet, you know, they're sort of this really a sensitive and precise instrument to be able to think about issues of race and ethnicity and immigration for this community because they sort of stand at the crossroads of, of uh, you know, learning about their heritage from Iran from that first generation, but also being really sensitive to the kinds of puzzles and hiccups that interest me, I think, uh, in sociology too. Mm -hmm. And so so this the book, it's called The Limits of Whiteness. Um, and it's a great book. Um, there is a subtitle. Let me try... Iranian Americans. Look, I have a coffee right oh, here. Oh, beautiful. Uh, <laughs> I went to, uh, for listeners, I went to my shelf and grabbed a coffee and I've shoved it in Derek's face. <laughs> so the book is called The Limits of Whiteness, Iranian Americans and the Everyday Politics of Race. And it is a, a fantastic book. In fact, I've um, assigned it to two independent studies for students uh, 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 to read. So it's a, it's a great book. And I think it really develops two really, really interesting and core concepts. Uh, and I really, I had to ask you, this had to be sort of the first question, um, to kind of explain these two concepts. And the, the concepts are racial hinges and racial loopholes. And I think those are two very, very uh, uh, nuanced and interesting concepts that uh, seem to be not adequately dealt with elsewhere in sociological work. Uh, and I think you can really, uh, you bring something very interesting to that. So. Oh, thanks so much for that, Derek. Um, so I coined this, this concept, racial hinges, and it was really to help me think about um, these moments in the broader history of immigration where... Um, Iranians sort of appear in the record. I say that they're kind of like ghosts that are conjured up in the margins of American history, but had not really been, um, they had not been legible as present because again, like I said, um, you know, for the most part, they arrived as 
permanent sort of residents to stay in the States from 1979 forward. And yet the specter of Iran, the idea of Iran actually has been a direct influence on immigration policy and the racialization of different groups from different parts of the world for centuries. And so um, really the backstory of racial hinges was that I was looking through this archive of racial prerequisite cases. And this is from, you know, anywhere from like 75 to 100 years ago when um, immigrants were dragged into naturalization court and they had to prove to a judge that they were white and therefore could be um, you know, processed as naturalized citizens and to claim a right to citizenship in the U.S. And so uh, though there were not, for the most part, Iranian or Persian claimants who were actually the people there at court, um, they were talked about quite uh, quite often by um, claimants who were, in fact, from Armenia or different parts of the Arab world, South Asia. Um, and so Iranians are kind of dragged into court by various people to serve different ends. And so in some cases, right, a lawyer would sort of strategically position Iranians as brown and say, well, relative to Iranians, my you know, Armenian client is very clearly white. They're Christian. They're oriented toward Europe. If you really want to find the brown people in that part of the world, go to Iran. And the flip side of that is that you'd find other cases where there'd be a South Asian claimant who would say, well, you may think I'm from India, but actually my family's part of this eighth century migration of people from Persia to the South Asian, you know, the subcontinent. And so my roots are in Iran, therefore I'm white. And so this push and pull, the way that um, Iranians are sort of used, I say, to open or close the door to whiteness as necessary. The metaphor of a hinge just really helped me sort of think through the way that they were um, they were just kind of co-opted and used to different ends. And I think that there's still an afterlife of this. It's not just something that exists in the archives. There are plenty of examples, you know, presently about this and many other groups, right, who sort of have this liminal in-between state. Um, so that's where racial hinges came from. And then more broadly in the book, I say that when you have a history and a kind of present uh, condition of being a racial hinge, you're at risk of falling into what I call racial loopholes. And so in particular in the U.S., the strongest arm of the law around uh, discrimination or bias is framed around the issue of race. And so um, uh, when... Uh, you are a hinge and you mean different things to different people at different times. Uh, that means that when you want to have discrimination or bias addressed uh, that you faced, that you very often fall into loopholes. So I go through these, you know, variety of different, like extremely at times awkward, uh, sometimes very like difficult to read sorts of cases where um, institutions like the court system actually have a very tough time of, of negotiating right um, a racial discrimination case or lawsuit when it occurs against Iranians or others from the Middle East. And so uh, I describe that type of a process as falling into a racial loophole. And by no means, I think, are these concepts that only uh, apply to Iranians. And it's been extremely surprising and gratifying the extent to which I've seen other people kind of like try on some of these concepts and say, you know, does it help me think about this other case of this other group? Um, and so it's neat to see that working out um, and to see if that's uh, helpful or useful to other people. Um, I, I think your work, broadly speaking, really aligns well with the, the modus operandi of this entire podcast. We're interested in noise. We're interested in confusion. We're interested in boundaries and boundary making. And it seems the core of your book, at least in my reading, forgive me if I've read it incorrectly, is this categorization is really the, 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 one of the central uh, units of analysis, if you will, is this idea that we need to categorize people and then there are implications when we categorize them. Uh, whether it be in a census or whether it be self-categorization or whether it be uh, othering and, and distinguishing between ourselves and some others, that this category along racial lines has so many implications. And you draw this out in various fields. Um, I'm interested in how you got there kind of methodologically. What, what did you do? What did you actually study? Uh, I know you've, uh, you, you've done ethnographic work, but... Um, can you tell us a little bit more about your uh, the ways in which you got da data and gathered data uh, for for this particular project? Yeah, um, uh, you know it 
is certainly a project that changed over time and um something like those two concepts that we just talked about, I think this is quite typical, right? They really emerged at the end as I was writing up the book manuscript and I had that bird's eye view. The aha moment. Yeah. <laughs> um, so these were, in fact, sort of last minute additions um, that I don't even think appeared maybe in the book proposal um, that I had sent out. Um, and so really the first nugget of ethnographic inquiry was based in like assignments that I was doing for field methods classes as a graduate student. And um, I had heard about uh, this summer camp that had started about like 10 years earlier. Um, and it had been started by two Iranian American women who were right around my age. Um, and so 10 years earlier, they began a summer camp for second generation kids. And it's in different parts of the country uh, every summer, but it's this two week space that's sort of forged on a kind of anti-racist utopian ideal where um, in some ways they do like very typical summer camp activities like playing soccer you know or um, crafts <laughs> but also um, it is this really intriguing space where um, it's meant as a kind of corrective to what young people have or haven't learned about Iranian identity and Iranian history and so in some ways it's a corrective to mythologies that young people may have heard from first generation parents with different sorts of rose-colored glasses. It's a corrective to, you know, if young people haven't heard about things like the 1953 CIA coup and different sorts of intervention that have come from the United States and the West to destabilize Iran at different points, right, in its modern history. And so um, this summer camp fascinated me and it intrigued me. It was this, you know, very like a package two weeks as well as a sort of ethnographer where I could dip in, get super immersed, but then, you know, exit the field. Um, and so, so I was doing some assignments uh, at the summer camp and I w was trained there the whole year before as like a counselor and until they gave me access, right? Like, wow. Um, so you were fully immersed. Yeah. Like, um, I think... Uh, Ethnographers know this, right? That rapport and trust is so huge. And so this was an ongoing conversation over 18 months that I had um, with the people who organized the summer camp. And I really had to show my bona fides and like be there um, as a true 100% participant before they would even engage in the conversation, right? About if I could take notes as a field researcher. So in any case, um, I, I attended this camp and worked at this camp. Um, and then uh, it turns out, right, that even though the camp itself was two weeks these young people maintained these connections that they'd made all year um the the camp really was itself a kind of a diaspora that was year round and so um just through the act of like following the trajectories of the young people that attended this camp and the way that they maintained social ties through like social media and reunions that they would sometimes have over like a spring break or something um it just made me cast the net that much wider right and i really had to start to think about how the issues that were discussed and played out at camp actually, you know, they had an earlier history in childhood homes. Um, the things that they talked about at camp very much had to do with experiences in high school or in college, you know, and so it made a lot of sense to to sort of follow the backstory of how people even got to this camp. And so I widened the circle of young people that were in the study. I went into people's childhood homes, like literally would be, you know, in these sort of like negotiations that were both kind of familiar to people who do research, but then also very, very Iranian. And, you know, certain subcultures, right, have these, like, norms around um, hospitality and how do you, like, get into a field site. So uh, I did a lot of work to, like, ingratiate myself, like, into people's actual, like, intimate homes um, to spend time with families there. Um, again, like, followed young people through school. Um the act of traveling to and from Iran uh, was a very like salient issue at one point in the research. And so I have a chapter that's about young people's travels to and from the homeland. Um, and so it ended up becoming right a kind of sprawling ethnography that started at a two week summer camp that I went to three times, but then became a sort of like year round inquiry. And I was a sort of roving person trying to meet young Iranians in all four corners of the United States and the Midwest right in between. Um, and and yeah, it just sort of um, became uh, became uh, uh, something where I was like 
traversing sociology of education, sociology of family, just, (laughs) you know, consuming and grabbing it all because it all matters. It's funny that you say that because in the margins of my uh, copy, you see like part sociology of law, part comparative historical, part of education, part sociology of race, part sociology of religion, all these different aspects coming in. And then on top of that, you didn't just focus on one thing. You have chapter six, which focuses on the one camp, um, but you didn't just focus on that. You probably could have written a book maybe just on that. You kind of went across uh, sort of transnational lines and, and you really focused on America as a whole and how that's connected in the global landscape as well. Um, oftentimes in ethnography, um, one of the sort of common critiques is they focus, it's too micro. It's find one group of people and study them. Um, but your work really uh, broadened that and tried to include more. And I'm curious how you set the boundaries of your own work in that respect. Where did you, how did you know where to stop? <laughs> um, this is like the beauty of, um, you know, when, when academia is like, sort of at peak kind of optimal, you know, academia is when um, people are like giving you feedback and it's critical and it pushes you and it makes you work that much harder. And so at one point, you know, you're very like intuitive to realize that this was a dissertation that was structured as just an in-depth ethnography of a summer camp. Um, And I gave a very early presentation as like a recent ABD, maybe with like one summer of research under my belt at the camp um, and I gave a, a talk at a conference and a scholar a senior scholar who I really really admire um, in Q&A like with kindness but very much like put me in my place and said you know um, first of all I don't think you're being critical enough about the camp <laughs> so that was you know great feedback to get she was like you know you, sort love of, critical you drank <laughs> you drank the Kool-Aid it <laughs> sounds like um, and furthermore right um, you need to be pushed to like think about um, this is not a sort of bubble that you have artificially sort yeah, of removed. Not yes, sort of exactly. Event. You know, um, but to really take that broader lens, whether it's a geopolitical lens, you know, or something that's more um, dynamic, sort of about the worlds that these young people belong to outside the camp. And so um, it was really like you know the um, a positive effect of public humiliation. <laughs> in a kind of academic setting. I think we have all been there at <laughs> totally. least once in our career. Uh, if yes. not, uh, you've probably written Das Kapital. <laughs> <laughs> so there was versions of this that happened like throughout the project. Um, and by the time, um, yeah, like, you know, I, I finished my PhD. Um, you know, it was very like clear that um Although I had expanded the ethnographic inquiry to be not just about the camp, right, to be these other sites, too. But there was this entire like historical kind of backstory that was intriguing that really had not nobody had yet put pen to paper to write that out. And so I knew that that was another component that I wanted to build on um, to to extend from the dissertation into the book that now exists today. Yeah, I think it's a great narrative. And I, I. As a sociologist of law or someone who calls themselves a partially a sociologist of law, I really enjoy the archival legal research um, because that tends to be overlooked often <laughs> in our work. We'll tend to say these laws exist, yeah. but you actually explore how the boundary making and the noisiness around uh, either self-perceptions of a particular ethnicity or alternative others, like external perceptions mm-hmm. of uh uh, of someone's sort of uh, background. And it, you, you highlight how that extends into the legal um, realm uh, to develop these really two really interesting concepts. Thank you so much. I mean, I would also say that ultimately, like the kind of unwieldiness of it, again, like ricocheting from the family to education to this to that, it's also really, it ended up being a reflection of why I love sociology and why I came to it mm-hmm. as an undergrad major, right? Is like, um, we are the biggest umbrella I can think of in terms of the social sciences, both methodologically, but also in terms of fields of study and like areas of inquiry. And so um, I think thought that ultimately it was really fitting that I kind of just followed the young people where they went and it ended up being a 
kind of 360 lens on their social world, you know, um, because in a way that actually like reflects any sociology program where you go into their sort of course catalog and you see, wow, like this discipline can accommodate and hold so many different things. I think in a way, this, in a small way, my book ended up sort of being a reflection of that too. Yeah, it was a, to me, it was a sort of truly grounded theoretical approach. So you can kind of tell while reading it and the prose that it's written in that um, sort of uh, you reflexively learned as you moved uh, on. And I think that's the, I, I would agree. I think that's the value and the beauty of sociological research. You can get into one field or one area, I'm interested in terrorism, and then end up in a million different uh, places answering completely different uh, questions. So on that note, that is a perfect segue to move or to, to probe you a little bit about what you're currently working on. Um, what new questions are you interested in and what are you currently grappling with in your work? Uh, so really when I came to Canada, um, my husband Clayton Childress and I like crossed the border in 2013. So almost, you know, like five years ago to the day, um, I had been doing right, like almost 10 years of work about sort of the awkward predicament of groups from the Middle East who are integrated into the American sort of landscape as, as white. Then I had this um, five years ago, this actual experience of my own racial identity changing and being read and sort of integrated into the University of Toronto as a faculty of color. My race changed when we crossed the border and I went from being white to West Asian. Um, and just that simple embodied act of sort of living out this bigger principle that I knew, which was that the U.S. is actually like a weird case and in so many ways right this sort of taken for granted thing that I did know intellectually it wasn't really until I experienced it in the act of coming to Canada that it sort of opened up this new field of horizons really around sort of boundaries and censuses and this sort of stuff so I was sort of churning and having all these different questions that were motivating a second project for me but this also sort of happened at the same time that um, we had a, a transfer of government at the federal level here in Canada where um, uh, Trudeau was elected in late 2015. And so in this moment of like regime change, uh, like so many people in Canada, my interest was really um, captured by um, the rapid impact plan to resettle you know 25,000 Syrian refugees in the span of like two months at the end of 2015 and so um, it really tapped into so many questions that I had about the multicultural Canadian state about the way that boundaries are drawn different differently um, the relationship of citizens the citizenry to these sorts of projects of integration is really different here and so um, at the same time that I had these interests that were really motivated around immigration and race to think through the Syrian uh, refugee resettlement project here, I had two colleagues who are senior colleagues here in this department, Dr. Melissa Milkey, who studies mental health and stress, and Ido Peng, who does global social policy. You know, they were also really intrigued uh, from their vantage points by this, um, this, you know, migration wave that we were due to experience and so um, uh, it was something that was sort of on our minds and then when the government uh, put out a call it was a sort of joint effort of SHRC and the IRCC which is Immigration Refugees and Citizenship Canada um, they sort of had a broad call it was to researchers in all fields um, at Canadian universities and they said you know pitch us a project that has to do with something related to the resettlement of Syrian refugees the three of us put our heads together and we were like hey the deadline is coming up in a couple of weeks what if we just sat down and hashed out right some sort of an inquiry that brings together all of the different things we're interested in um and we just made a go of it so we wrote a, a grant proposal uh, that sought to look at issues of integration and stress with a particular focus on mothers um, and that was really strategic because it was an place that united all of our research areas sort of the act of mothering and the ways that that is sometimes elided or sort of looked over in a more like policy dominant kind of framework 
it's looking at immigrant lives. Um, so we knew we wanted to center mothers and we wanted to look at integration and stress. And we sort of thought it was interesting that even in the call for proposals from Shirk and IRCC, um, they had flagged as areas of interest things like um, security, uh, employment, these things that are sort of coded like androcentric male centered and so we just sort of went for it and we're like let's like really embrace and amplify that this is going to be a study of mothers and this is going to uncover so many things about the linked fates of their partners and of their children right but what if we centered mothers what kind of a lens would that bring to the issue of resettlement and so we were really lucky we got some of the seed funding and so in 2016 and 2017 we did a pilot study with 41 mothers about half were in um, the western suburbs of Toronto in this place called Mississauga the other half were sort of spread out across the proper city of Toronto um, and we we did two waves of interviews with these mums the first was within like five months of when they landed in Canada and the second interview happened right before month 13 which is this like very um, uh, delicate time where uh, refugees are transitioning off of the kinds of supports that they had either from the government or from private sponsors onto either some sort of social assistance or the government and sponsors are hoping at this point right the families have employment um, but this is this like transition period that's really key and so our second wave of interviews was done at that time uh, and so from this pilot study we really um, became attuned to what we thought is like three distinct forms of stressors that these mothers were facing in the first year. Uh, the first was, of course, the kinds of um, trauma that they were only beginning to crystallize and deal with once they had landed in Canada because previously um, they were on the go they were in these temporary settings like refugee camps in Turkey or in Jordan and so it was go 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 survival mode right uh, and it wasn't until really landing with permanent residency in Canada that it then seemed like mothers right were able to actually take stock and process what they had lost so some of the major issues here were of course the sort of distinct trauma of violence that were attached to the war but also um, the way resettlement regimes like this are where you are coming from an environment where you have had multi-generational family formations where so many extended kin are helping you raise children aunties uncles cousins you know grandparents but you are resettled in a kind of nuclear family formation and so these mothers were also processing the deep loss right of the kind of kin networks that they lived in in their homes and the kind of shared um, like child rearing you know that just wasn't going to characterize the lives that they now had in Canada Canada. So there was lots of loss. A second stressor was, of course, related to children and the kinds of um, issues that kids were having in schools as they were trying to pick back up their educations that had been interrupted. But we found that for the most part, there were interventions in place in the schools to to address these stressors. So whether it was like translators in the schools or um, the sort of activist involvement of sponsors who would intervene right if there was bullying or or translation related issues those seemed like they were stressful but that there were supports in place to resolve those um, and then the third major stressor we saw in the pilot had to do with um, mother's teenage children so on average these families that were resettled in Canada have really big family sizes this is like six to eight children in, in any one family and so there's a wide range of ages that the kids represent but as you would imagine like the teenagers were the most stressful for the mothers and what mother wouldn't tell you right their My teenager is particularly stressful um, but there were these um, nuances to it that were really about kind of um, the, the specific predicament of these families mm -hmm. where teenagers had had their educations interrupted in high school or junior high right at this very crucial stage and so coming to Canada um, in many cases right they're sort of like too old to be in getting the educational supports that they need but they're also lost in the shuffle when it comes to entering the labor market and they don't have the background to go to university and so for mothers this was extremely stressful right like what would happen to these teenage children and so um, uh, that was the work that we did in the pilot study. 
And it begged the question, which like connected it back to my first project, which was like, okay, we've spent a lot of time talking to these moms about their teenagers. What would the teenagers have to say about that? Right. What about the other side of that story? Um, and I felt like um, because I had had such a profound experience with young people in my first project. Um, and it's also what drew me, to, I think, to becoming a professor. It was like I feel like the age 18 to 22, if you're thinking about a traditionally aged undergrad, like there's just something really special about about that period in a person's life mm -hmm. and in high school as well um, where there's just so much identity formation happening and so um, that third stressor for me just like um, was the the ship that launched right like yeah. all these other sort of inquiries for me and so the idea was always like well, what if we did a pilot and then we could blow it up scale it up and out and make a much bigger project yeah. so we applied for a Shirk Insight grant this past cycle um, where we said we wanted to work with these mothers again, but to expand the scope, recruit new mothers, but also do paired samples. And so a mother would enter our study, but also with one of her teenage children. So we could get that 360 on the mother-teen relationship. Mm -hmm. And so we're really lucky that we got the funding. We're starting the new uh, phase of the project in September and so uh, we're recruiting about a hundred families into it so it'll be a hundred mother teen pairs um and that is a big project yeah it's gonna be big um and so uh this is also like pushing my my skills in a new direction because I'm the principal investigator on this and it's a very large research team we're anticipating you know 10 to 12 people on the team and so it's just going to be fun to like learn a new skill set and to really take like a new leadership position um within this project so that that's fascinating good luck with the project it sounds <laughs> Thank you so much. Uh, overwhelming to say the least um but uh interesting uh uh, Thank you. Well. I mean, it really takes all of these people because, um, you know, there's a way that um, the importance of Arabic fluency cannot be understated. Like it's kind of a no duh, right? Of course, like this project requires that you would be doing these interviews in Arabic, particularly with the mothers, right? But also like the teenagers, that's the language that they know that they're comfortable with. And it would be um you know, absolutely impossible to, to accomplish our pilot study or this bigger one without um, the efforts of, you know, like amazing graduate and undergraduate students we're so lucky to have at University of Toronto who are themselves from that part of the world, native language speakers. Um, and so uh, it just takes like a ton of manpower and woman power <laughs> to accomplish a project like this. So um, we're very grateful for their work. It seems to be like the common, uh, and this is just sort of coming to me in our discussion, the common uh, crutch or, or the common uh, center point of your research is on an identity formation and is on how individuals, uh, and again, please forgive me if I'm, if I'm incorrect in reading this or listening to this, um, but in how young people form their identities. Um, and I think it's particularly important, and we've mentioned the United States, we've mentioned Canada, and uh, I think we can't ignore the rhetoric um, that is currently sort of uh, pervading public discourse, particularly around people from that part of the world or uh, who ha are aligned with uh, a, a, a culture that in many ways gets uh, a bad rap here uh, in, in the Western world. Um, how have you noticed in your discussions with young people, with mothers, how have you uh, identified those uh, or that rhetoric, those discourses of Islamophobia, of, uh, uh, of cultural and ethnic othering, how have you seen those manifest in your own uh, discussions or with, with your participants and respondents? Yeah, I would say um, the young people who are in my book, um, the Iranian Americans, uh, they were like highly sensitive and attuned to this. Um, they, they knew that uh, after the failures of diplomacy of the past 40 years where there's like literally no diplomatic relationship between Iran or the United States that Iran has been in many ways kind of the boogeyman that's motivated so much um, politics in the U.S. but right sort of even just skimming the first chapter of Edward Said Orientalism <laughs> suggests to us that it's such a longer term project, right? This positioning of the East versus the West. And so young people were, right, like acutely aware of the recent ways that Iran had been positioned that way. But um, right, sort of they were coming to grips with the fact that this was like such a longer term story. Um, what's been so fascinating about the work with mothers 
is I think um, I think back to this like moment we had in our research um, where we deigned to even try to do something a little bit um, uh, I don't know um, methodologically cool or intriguing, which was to to take some of the principles of participatory action research. Uh, to, to try to bring them into our project. And so at the CSAs, the Canadian Sociological Association last year, um, we convened a panel that was about our project with mums, but we actually had two mums be on the panel with us. And they were almost in a kind of like speaking back kind of a, a mode um, where they were doing a Q&A uh, that we had our RAs help translate um, where audience members could ask the mothers like any kind of questions they had and the mothers could reflect on their participation in our study. Um, and one of the coolest things that a mom shared was she said, you know, um, when I was in Syria and then in Jordan after that, um, the people around me were saying, right, that like the East and the West are incompatible and they're never going to understand us in Canada and they won't, you know, come to like us. And so she said, I really joined this project. My motivation was in a way like I wanted to test these researchers. I wanted to see as an example of Canadians and Canadian society how they were going to treat us and the other mothers. Um, and so it was just one of those aha moments where, you know, intellectually, right, that this is this reciprocal kind of exchange and knowledge production is a sort of two-way street um, but it was again a reminder that like as we are collaborating and quote-unquote studying research participants they are also studying us right and making observations forming patterns theorizing and so the mother was sharing right the different sorts of ideas and perspectives she now had about Canada based on the way that we were handling ourselves um, and so that type of stuff was like again super fascinating and it's complicated and kind of funky so um my collaborators and i have just uh finished writing an article that's um it's under conditional accept now so um knock on wood that we push it I through like the finish line knock really hard on the table because it would have just reverberated through the uh mic I'm just trying to be a good podcast that guest. Was, that, was a, that was a pro move. <laughs> Thank you. Um, yeah, so, you know, knock on wood, we push this paper through and it makes it into publication next year. Um, but it really is about sort of the methodological challenges and rewards of, of the project that we did the pilot study with the mothers. And so we talk about right the issue of translation. We talk about those kinds of moments where the mothers like, you know, um, sort of exerted their own agency and will, uh, which of course they would, right? But we're so conditioned to like be surprised when that happens, yeah, you know. Yeah. Um, and so, so hopefully we'll have some some stuff that we can actually circulate and talk about freely. That that's really interesting because I I think you mentioned it perfectly. If you get beyond a cursory reading of Edward Said's work, you'll get to the real critical uh, exploration that like we in scholar or in the academic community actually created some of these distinctions in the first place and uh, a sort of backstory of my uh, Edward Said's son was on my dis dissertation committee and he sat in my I'm a white man uh, for the listener if you didn't know uh, and he sat in one of our meetings and he said Derek don't ever forget that you're white you're a white man and also don't ever forget that if you read uh, any of my father's work, you have to position yourself uh, as potentially contributing to that dichotomy, that false dichotomy between East versus West. And that has stuck with me ever since to try to position myself in the research, but also find ways to allow for voices, allow for people and alternative interpretations and allow for people to be like, hey, researcher, you actually don't know more than my life experience, right? And it seems like you're doing that really uh, in an interesting way. Oh, thank you. I mean, we we were hoping that that, that comes through in the, in the interviews themselves, but also um, we were so, again, like so extremely lucky to have this like core group of seven or eight undergrads and grad students, like some of whom were actually resettled in 2015, right, mm -hmm. as part of this wave. Um, and for those that weren't on the team um, that weren't that recent of migrants, they had come here like in the last five or 10 years. And so they were like intimately aware of of these these challenges that the mothers were going through and um, they checked us in our team meetings right we had these students like intensely vet our for example like interview questions our probes um, our like compensation strategy about honoraria right we just asked them to like 
just have at it and like really critique us. And so um, it was very much motivated, right, by this sort of like decolonial approach. And um, in this article, we try to really reckon like where we failed and where we think we may have succeeded. But it was about being open to listening to others and to really, um, you know, be exactly aware of the things that you're describing. I think like another uh, uh, another thing I find really fascinating from my perspective, um, uh, or at least a question that I have um, for you is, how do you teach some of this? Uh, some of these, uh, you can't deny that even in Canada, there is this undercurrent of very right wing conservatism that is seemingly more uh, percolating at the surface level maybe not in Toronto as a relatively progressive um, city but in other places in this country there is a real hard anti-immigration anti-refugee particular um, discourse sort of permeating our public sphere Um, I wonder how you go about teaching some of these very uh, 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 sensitive topics in your classrooms which might have I don't know, 50, 100, 10, I don't know, a bunch of students. Um, What are some of the strategies in which you deal with this sensitive uh, topic? Yeah, um, you know, I've come to understand that it takes... Uh, it takes multiple sorts of mixed forms of data to to convey right these kind of complex issues and so sometimes the students really benefit from quote-unquote like cold hard quantitative evidence of things right sometimes it's like a particularly moving documentary or a podcast, right? Or asking someone to come in and share a story. So something that's more narratively driven. Sometimes it's about asking students to um, mine their own personal experiences through writing assignments. But at the same time, you can't only do that. Sometimes it's about role playing and it's about asking them to actually not interrogate the self, but to occupy someone else's shoes and to embody that, right? And to do sort of like different kinds of role playing exercises in the classroom that go outside the self and so it's really about I think like leveraging anything I'm throwing stuff at the wall yeah. every single semester yeah, no, <laughs> to I, to get students to think about this I often feel like I'm doing the same I teach a sociology of terrorism class and it's uh, I've seen the in my brief time teaching I'm not a seasoned uh, veteran yet um, hopefully one day knock on wood as I do it <laughs> as well um, I'm seeing the citation count of Jordan Peterson increasing and things like that. And I'm just like, ah, like I want to develop new strategies for countering that. And I think the, the one way I, the one thing I always fall back on is one experience. We all live and have different experiences. So if you can tease out any of those experiences, that will help. And then two, data. It comes down to using our faith, if I have faith in one thing, it's science and faith in um, using data to, to challenge some of these issues or some of these tropes that get thrown around from group to group in a, a relatively uh, anti-culture, uh, I, I will call it, uh, movement that we're seeing. And we're seeing in the States, um, we're seeing it in Canada, um, this sort of, uh, like I said, rise of a conservative um, uh, movement. Uh, and it's interesting because you and I have kind of similar trajectories in in our professional life. Um, there's differences, but you came to Canada. I went to the U.S. and then said, I got to get out. I'm going back to Canada. <laughs> I often say, like, you're going to pry my permanent residency card here out of my cold, dead hands. <laughs> this is like the most important document in my house is my Canadian permanent residency card. <laughs> so so bringing it back to, to that, how, how did you find, and you mentioned this a little bit, so if I get too personal, please uh, tell me to shut up, but how did you find your own transition to coming to Canada? Because I could talk for hours about my transition, temporary uh, transition in, in the United States, because I went through the presidential election as well, which is, <laughs> we can get to that. But how did you find your own um, transition to to moving to Toronto, the great city of Toronto. Yeah, um, well, I really want to hear more about your observations of having, you know, done your PhD in the U.S. and uh, I think you just have a very like unique vantage point. I'm curious to to hear more from, but um, my experience has been that like um, 
Toronto, but Canada more broadly, like became very ascendant sort of in the public awareness. That's my perspective, at least around the time that we moved here. Like you had um, the visibility of Drake, the Raptors, like, you know, there was just a lot of stuff going on. Of course, like the federal election and Justin Trudeau sort of, you know, like Prime Minister Bay becoming a cultural a icon, thing, yeah. you know. Um, and so uh, it went from one semester sort of, you know, our, our friends and family being like Canada that's really random to Canada can I come you know how do you sponsor me to come and so it's been an interesting time to to be um, an American here um, because because I think in many ways um, there is such a destabilization this is starting to get kind of serious now but there's such a destabilization of norms across the world and a destabilization of institutions that are relatively recent let's say of the past 60 70 years that um, I think like other countries and organizations are orienting toward Canada as you know having some of the best practices right now or sort of you know looking to see how are Canadians doing things and that is I think in some ways in direct relationship to other places sort of like falling apart and so um I'm learning at the same time as other people I don't in any way deign to know about Canada I've only been here five years um but but it's interesting to me right the sort of ascendancy of, of not just Canadian pop culture and iconography and that kind of stuff but um yeah I think it has an extremely influential and visible role right now in the world yeah I, I would agree I would I would preface my agreement by saying we are the the sort of public narrative about Canada isn't actually fully accurate to Canadian history uh, and even contemporary Canada in every respect. Um, so uh, we have our own history of colonialism. We have our own history of terrible things done to certain populations. And, and some of the things we're seeing elsewhere, we have a history of that as well. Um, um, but I think you're right. Uh, in the international sort of reputation scheme, Canada is definitely... Uh, ascending mm -hmm. that ladder um, whereas other places in the western world are are descending i think so too and i mean again like i'm very attuned to it now that i live here so this might not be an observation i would have made if we'd stayed in the states and taken jobs there but i do feel like you know things like the trc truth and reconciliation yeah. and like um sort of you know the broader history that you're flagging about sort of Canada as a settler colonial state that has contributed to as much atrocity against indigenous and native people as you know any sort of modern country that we're looking at um that I think like also people are looking at Canada as a field site to interrogate this more and more I'm finding American scholars right that are really in conversation with the failures of the TRC for example and so even sort of um, the the dirty underbelly of Canada I think is being exposed in a way that that feels like it's it's a bit of a fresh thing mm -hmm. yeah yeah I, I, I would agree completely I, I just think sometimes the uh, the, the, the boostering Bay, yeah. like, type yes. thing it, it just it glosses over that muddy noisy history that we have and it's uh um i i think canada is a great place i came back for a very particular reason or for many very particular reasons um one of which is the the discourse and the rhetoric of the presidential election back in 2016 yeah, i mean it's a slippery slope we've even seen in the past couple weeks since uh you know doug ford took the premiership over um, here in Ontario that gains are scaled back incredibly quickly, right? And so um, listeners probably won't know about this um, if they're from outside Toronto, um, outside Ontario, but um, there are ways that like uh, healthcare, right, is sort of being revised. And so some stuff that the province was covering like for children's prescriptions now sort of like um, there, there's a way that they're sort of tapping into private insurance first. And so these things at the end of the day aren't going to make a huge impact in like my life or your life as like well-compensated faculty, but they, it does represent this like shifting over, right, of what's considered a public responsibility to to a private responsibility. And so that's been scary even in the past couple of weeks. Something like healthcare, which I think of as just a fundamental difference between the U.S. and Canada. Yeah. Um, uh, I do see, right, oh, okay, this is how these things, <laughs> I always try to when I'm 
exploring new policy directions um, in, in Canada, in the US, elsewhere, I always try to look at who is disadvantaged most by that decision. Because at the end of the day, I am a white man. I'm probably not going to be disadvantaged from many uh, uh, policies, uh, many new uh, policy directions. But other people are. And, and I think that, um, like you said, we're not the ones that some of these decisions are going to affect. But they there are manifestations of effect that um, can go far-reaching and not necessarily on the surface of our public sphere. We don't necessarily see it. We don't talk about it because um, even in Canada, we have a relatively centralized media and things that um, don't necessarily talk uh, uh, about some of these really challenging, really difficult um, issues. And it's interesting that you bring uh, Doug Ford up because that's sort of, many people are saying that's the sort of rebuttal of Canadian right conservatism. and. I'm not sure. I guess time will tell because he didn't have a platform would be the <laughs> one thing that I would start at. Um, but it's interesting to see this sort of I, I last month I was at a conference in Oshawa uh, on uh, hate crime and uh, almost everyone that was at that conference was in agreement that there is a rise. There is a notable rise of uh, right wing violence and just right-wing sentiment period yeah i mean you brought up jordan peterson a couple minutes ago but again From like this fine the, establishment the, the flip the, side of like the drake and the and the trudeau is that actually the leading cultural export right now is jordan peterson yeah. out of canada yeah. right so what do we do with that yeah it's it's a it's a challenge and i'm noticing it in in the classroom and i i imagine other people have or will um london is a relatively more uh conservative uh, town than Toronto. Um, so I grew up 40 minutes east of Toronto. Um, and it's basically Toronto light. It's Durham region. I don't, are you familiar? Yeah, because people are moving to Durham yeah, and commuting to Toronto. To Durham yeah. or they're moving to like Milton and Bolton. It's just the urban sprawl. Um, and, and I was lucky enough to go to the University of South Carolina for my PhD and live in Bible Belt, live in the most conservative place I've ever lived. And it was actually a blue county. Um, it was a pretty progressive county. It was just in South Carolina. And seeing the rhetoric and seeing the, the narratives that are picked up on in different locations in quick succession, moving from Ottawa. I, I lived in Toronto region, then I moved to Ottawa, which is very progressive. Then I moved to South Carolina and then back to London. And it, seeing all of these... Uh, uh, discourses that are picked up and narratives that are picked up and ignored and um, legitimized is such a fascinating thing and that really kind of what orients my work in understanding discourse and understanding narratives and understanding not just lived experience but also understanding what, what's the, the public discourse that we're picking up on and why are we picking up on it what does that tell us about our contemporary and our history and our future um, uh, potentially. Totally. And I think, um, you know, it's something that I haven't had the space to think about too critically, but it's like these observations just keep piling up, which is like, we have a very diverse undergraduate body here at U of T across all three campuses. You know, um, many, many of our students come from racialized communities. They're all fairly local to this area as well. But across these these sort of diverse backgrounds that students come from, um, the the way that the Jordan Peterson stuff has sort of um, become kind of the dominant political conversation that they're a part of, um, that so many of our students are finding something to hold on to there, right? And these aren't sort of like the modal, like angry young guy in the basement we think of as like white, da 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 you know, like that's not the student body here. But um, there is this this real sort of like fascination and engagement that, that our students have um, with, with the... the discourse that that he's producing and so um i find that super fascinating and i think it's something that we um are going to need to grapple with yeah yeah i like, I, I could not now. agree more <laughs> yeah the 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 way forward is not necessarily to just say oh he's out there that's just gonna happen we just we can ignore it they're all stupid or all yeah. it, none of those things yeah. it, it reflects a particular feeling that resonates with people period 
end of story for whatever reason that resonates um, that there's a whole bunch of reasons mm-hmm. as sociologists we would know yeah. it's not rooted in in a single ideology it's not rooted in a religion or totally. an ethnicity or race or class it's rooted in the, at the intersections of all of these it is and it's so interesting to think about is like in this media environment where our students are not all watching the same shows right across different streaming platforms or this or that like they have these extremely niche kind of like pop cultural interests and these communities that they belong to but there are really interesting ways that this interest in Jordan Peterson cuts across a highly diffuse sort of media environment and landscape and so we have to address this I don't know how but it's like that is also fascinating to me that like all my students sort of their affinities lie with really specific whether it's like Korean dramas on Netflix Mm -hmm. or like you know comic books or whatever it is like everybody's into something different but they're all also part of this jordan peterson conversation that crosses all these boundaries yeah and i think i think we are too we do that too within the academia within this structure that we have we get so into our niches uh and we'll just be oh i am a sociologist of x and that is it and don't extend beyond that um and i i I think we can potentially close off with a discussion of how we bridge some of those gaps um, with the emergence of social media we met on twitter this podcast (laughs) happened because we started connecting on twitter how do you view your your job as an academic or as a scientist um, for the natural the biologists and the (laughs) chemists i'm sorry we'll we'll just refer to sociologists as scientists but how do you view your job as a public figure as well as a uh, as a scientist or do you think those two things should Mm -hmm. uh, intersect yeah i think part of this is generational like i don't know exactly how old you are but i think that the age that i am which is almost 37 is like i'm i didn't really grow up on social media like social media you know exploded around the time that i was graduating high school and going Mm -hmm. into college um and uh it's like I didn't live my childhood like my parents weren't making Facebook posts about me Mm -hmm. or like they weren't positioning me as like a toddler influencer. So I don't have any kinds of like baggage from social media. Yeah. Uh, And I don't also I didn't like come up in a kind of like Adorno Horkheimer like, you know, um, (laughs) the medium is the message like be, you know, sort of um, oppositional toward this. I just sort of saw it as like a enhancement to to maintaining like ties with my friends who like live in all different parts of the country all different parts of the world you know i just sort of saw it as a way um to maintain ties and to kind of amplify or build on the questions i was interested in in my work or in my sort of identity as like a a sociologist and so i don't have an antagonistic relationship to social media it's always been like a fun place i think for me to blow off steam and Mm -hmm. a very intellectually generative place but i would say even in the past month like i'm very into the way sociologists in particular are now starting to like use something like twitter for knowledge dissemination i feel like even in the last week the number of people i've seen who have had these very nicely crafted tweets that are announcing like papers that are coming out or whatever you know some would call it self-promotion but i see it as knowledge dissemination and i'm glad when i see my colleagues posting that you know because it's bringing um it's bringing awareness that like this is a new contribution this is like a new piece of research in the field that becomes something that i pass along to students or to people in the media right who ask about these sorts of things and so um i would say i only see people's engagement kind of becoming on the one hand more irreverent but also more more serious and Mm -hmm. really grounded in our enterprises researchers yeah i think it's a little bit of both it's and that's completely fine it's it is definitely a little bit of you know self-promotion but i agree completely it's also generating knowledge and particularly when you think of the vast array of publishing outlets now both legitimate and illegitimate (laughs) um it's increasingly difficult to find articles and to find cutting edge research that doesn't necessarily fit with some of the dominant um, uh, sort of areas within sociology, within whether it be American sociology, Canadian sociology, global Mm -hmm. sociology. But oftentimes some of the best contributions 
aren't in the best journals. Um, so it's very difficult to, to miss. So I, I love seeing new articles and, and tweets, linking articles. And I particularly like the communal aspect of it, the, the sharing, the retweeting, the um, being able to link and create a podcast or, or do a podcast with someone that you hadn't met prior um, through social networking and through things like Twitter. Um, which is how I've kind of adopted using it. Just try to connect with people who are doing similar and different things, and um, you'll find books, you'll find articles, and you'll find uh, a lot of great things. And then you'll have people to go for coffee with at ASA or <laughs> at ISA in Toronto or, or things like that. Yeah, I mean, I'm not the first to say this, but I think the most public act that we take is the work of teaching, you know, like the work that we do in classrooms, particularly like those larger lectures, you know, when you're assigned to teach introduction to sociology or there's like, you know, theory methods, sequences um, that define this undergrad social major, um, that that I think is the most important public work that we do. Uh, but to be sure, you know, I'm... I, I'm so grateful you invited me to do this podcast. I think those kinds of opportunities, um, sociologists should take them because it's just great to see this this blossoming. And so many people now are, I think, um, even more open to this, you know, in recent sort of months and weeks uh, than they have been before. And so it's been really fun. Yeah, yeah I, I, I love one of the first things I do every morning is going on Twitter and they must have their algorithm figured <laughs> out completely for me because like the first 10 tweets are always like people I'm interested in. It, it, it probably just as simple as like the number of times. I've yeah, like you've clicked, engaged their posts. But yeah. like, it, just having that community is, is really interesting and it's really um, useful both for just talking things out but also for sharing uh, and a little bit of self-promotion uh, as well. It's not a bad thing to, to have your paper read or cited or uh, discussed uh, on, even on Twitter. Uh, and I think it's, it's best used to connect people um, and also to, to self-promote. But um, that is less, less, uh, uh, less useful, I think, because um, you can promote yourself in a variety of ways, like this podcast uh, does to some extent. I myself probably wouldn't call myself a public sociologist, but I'm doing an act of public sociology <laughs> right now um, when I bring someone as great as you uh, on uh, to talk about your research and to talk about your forthcoming research and, and current research. Um, so thank you so much for, for coming on. Thanks, do you have, Derek. Do you have anything uh, you want to ask or or talk about before we go? Um, we I'll can edit this put stuff in, out. Yeah, I'll put in a plug that the the job ads aren't up yet, but we are still healthily uh, hiring Whoa. into the junior ranks uh, at the U of T, and so um, we'll keep be sure a look to retweet out. that on yes, the, when we get it. <laughs> yes, um, we are just you know a dynamic, growing department still. Um, oftentimes people from outside Canada don't understand the way that the department is organized. So mm-hmm. um, we're part of what's called a tri-campus department, which means that we have sociology programs at the Scarborough campus, downtown at St. George and at Mississauga. Uh, but we also all come together as a graduate faculty downtown. So and sometimes I tell people it's kind of like CUNY in the grad center. It's sort of similar in that way. It's not exactly the same, but similar. And so, um, yeah, we are we are a huge sort of team of people here but we are hiring and so please do consider us awesome um do you want to the last thing i always get all of my guests to do is give a shout out for their twitter or their handles or whatever so feel free sure um so my handle is from like so long ago i think i was a grad student um it's at neda n-e-d-a Soch. S-O-C, uh, all one word. And uh, yeah, you can find me there. <laughs> uh, so funny story before before we wrap it up. Um, so I, I was looking for a handle for years, I would say. And I, I went around, <laughs> I did like my name that I put on academic articles or books or whatever, uh-huh. or book chapters. Uh, and that didn't work too long, stupid. And then I was like looking around, I need to shorten it up. And then I came across yours and yours was... <laughs> Netta Soch so I copied and if you look at my handle it's Derek Krim uh, so it works it worked out I didn't just do Derek Soch uh, 
but I, I definitely stole your handle. Uh, <laughs> just, that's so awesome. Just so you know. I had no idea. It I just, mean, it's simpler. It's just easier. Yeah, it's great that it was available. Yeah, yeah. I thought mine might because I tell people Netta is actually like the Katie of Iranian names. It ah. is not that unique. <laughs> um, but um, in most right Canadian or U.S. settings, um, it is kind of a different name. So I was happy Netta Social is available. Yeah, I wonder if Steve Krim is available. <laughs> Probably not. You better snap it up. <laughs> Hold it over the next Steve criminologist. <laughs> Netta, thank you so much um, for coming on. Uh, it's been a great chat. Thanks. Good luck with the podcast. Uh, I love it. Thank you. Hopefully you keep listening. Uh, and until next time, uh, keep listening for the noise.